We are in one of those sections of 2 Kings that is absolutely necessary and important, but not particularly fun to read. Our writer at the beginning of the chapter concludes that King Manasseh did more evil in the Lord's eyes than any king of Judah that came before him. And then he gives us this ugly list of reasons why he held that opinion about Manasseh. And when we read through this last Sunday night and studied it, it was like Manasseh opened up a Bible and said, let's do everything this book says not to. The Lord delights in showing mercy. And that's part of His covenant that He makes with us. Remember, the whole theme of 2 Kings is covenants and characters. Part of His characters, part of His promise to His people, that He delights in showing them mercy. But this was so bad that God couldn't just sit back and not do something about it, not just not give them what they deserve. This was on par with the worst things that the northern kings had done, and God had judged them. And so, God sends His prophets in, just like He did with those northern kings to predict that judgment is now coming on the nation. So, we pick it up in chapter 21 and verse 10. It says, And the Lord spoke by His servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, and has done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears shall tingle. While there were plenty in Judah who were willing and did go along with Manasseh's apostasy, multiple prophets are called in here, and they're faithful to speak out against it. These prophets gave a unified message to the king and to the nation. Because of what you have done, judgment is coming. They say, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these things, because you've gone along with it. Judgment is coming. That's the first reason that God is going to judge the nation of Judah. Now, it's interesting because it says here, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations. So, in other words, judgment, God didn't just drop a plague on on them after after Manasseh started doing the stuff in verse 3. It's not like God was just sitting there waiting up there going, I can't wait till they mess up so I can squash them. Not at all. God makes this decision after everything happens. After everything in verses 3 through 9, when it gets to the end of it, all these things. He says, because Manasseh has done, they've already, been a, they've already happened. God waited until Manasseh did all of it to send these prophets with a message of judgment. Now, the fact that judgment didn't happen immediately lays out an important truth. Judgment can be averted. God doesn't want to bring it. It can be averted. And we know from Scripture that judgment can be avoided and averted through repentance. Now, there's another thought that goes with that, though, with that truth, and it's this. If judgment can be avoided and averted by repentance… That means forgiveness and restoration can happen through repentance too. We must never forget our writer's audience when we read this book. The exiles in Babylon 
you know, they would read this and go, well, yeah, that happened to us. We're done. And that was kind of the mindset. When you read through the book of Ezekiel, you see as he's pleading with the people, ministering to them, there was this overwhelming thought of God's just done. We're done. It's over. And you know, they would read verses 3 through 9, and they would see the ugliness of their, their ancestor's sin, but they would also know, yeah, we did the same thing. It's why we're here right now. They would see all of that and get all of that. But they would also see that it wasn't until Manasseh had done all of it that God said, I must do something. You see, they would see that their forefathers had chance after chance after chance after chance to repent. You say, yeah, okay, but they ran out of chances and now God's done. That was their thought. But rehearsing through all of this and then seeing that it wasn't until it got that bad that God finally did something, that God wants to show mercy. If there's, let me just throw this out at you. So, if there's mercy at each point that gets to a place, like if, let me rephrase that, if there's mercy available at each point that you keep rejecting the Lord and keep getting to this place where God finally has to do something, then why isn't there mercy at a point afterwards as well if you'll turn back? If there's mercy at every spot, why do we all, all of a sudden assume that there's not mercy beyond that, the time when God brings judgment? I bring this up because I think I hear Christians sometimes will say this, like, I don't have a testimony. I've known Jesus my whole life. I've followed Jesus my whole life. What an awful testimony. That's the best testimony. Like, that's the best testimony you can have. What do you mean that's an awful? I don't have a testimony. That's great testimony. I wish that was my testimony. <laughs> I'm glad that I can share some of the things that I've gone through with people, and, and they can be like, oh, but you're not that way now. And I say, yeah, the Lord rescued me, and He's changed me, and He could change you. I'm glad I could do that. But I'd much rather not have to be the one who could do that. So sometimes I think most of us, because that's not our story, we can think, well, it's too late for me. And maybe you think that. Maybe you battle that. It's too late for me. My, my failures have cost me something very important. There's no way to go back to that. I, I can't ever get that back. You're right. You can't go back, but you can go forward. You can go forward. And you can go forward with God's blessing and favor if you repent. That's the awesome news. I think I battled these ideas for many years because I would see pivotal points in my life where I made really bad choices and there were consequences of those choices. And I would think, well, like anytime something difficult happened in my life or bad or how are we going to get through this, this challenge in life, I'd think, well, that's kind of just what I deserve, though. I mean, that's, I mean, that, I've lived a life that deserves to be, have problems. And I would always struggle thinking that God could bless me or use me or that there could ever be a path forward for me that would be holy, beautiful, pleasing to the Lord. And I think it's so important to come to the realization that while well, you can't go back, because I would always think if I could just go back, if I could just, like you think of like, I can think of probably like, you know, a handful of pivotal moments in my life. If I could just go back there and do something differently, all of this would be better. <laughs> you live like that, you don't really ever move forward, not, not the way God wants to, to move you forward. 
And so if you've been living that way, well, it's time to move forward because you can move forward with God's blessing and favor if you'll repent. Now, because Manasseh <laughs> plowed down that road of idolatry and seduced many in the nation to follow his worship, God had to bring judgment. And so in verse 12, he says, Therefore says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever hears of it, both of his ears shall tingle. Behold, listen up, pay attention. So in other words, this is the message. This is the, the crux of it. Judgment is coming, and it will be horrific. The word evil there, it's not evil in the sense of moral evil. Some, sometimes people will latch onto this and say, well, the Bible says God doesn't, he doesn't do evil, but here the Bible says he's going to do evil. The, the word evil, ra'ah, in Hebrew is a very broad word. And, and when it's used of God bringing evil, it doesn't take on the word something morally wrong. It refers to calamity, disaster, ruin, hard times. I'm going to bring hard times, disaster, and calamity and ruin upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears about what I've done to it, both of his ears shall tingle. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but the word tingle here, it means to quiver or shake. And the word implies that it was a common body reaction to terror or horror. When our, our body goes into fight or flight mode, adrenaline's released. And while that's, this can result in all sorts of physiological reactions, like people will you know, for frequently, like if you're stressed out and your adrenaline rush, your chest will start to feel pressure. That's probably the most common thing. But a normal physical response to a rush of adrenaline is a, either a rumbling or a thundering or a quivering of the ears. I was like, I remember I was looking at this and I read it in the Word and it said it's a physiological reaction like, like that's what the Hebrew word means, to fear. And I'm like, do people's ears shake when they get afraid? I've never had that experience. So I go to Mr. Google and all these things show up. Am I weird? My ears tingle when I get scared or my ears shake when I get scared. And I'm like, wow. And then you'll hear these doctors respond and they explain you know, that it's a physical response to a rush of adrenaline, fear. The prophets are preaching to the people that this won't be like anything they've heard of in their nation's history. This disaster will be horrific, far, far worse than any previous discipline God has brought against Judah. He says, I'm going to stretch, verse 13, I'm going to stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem like a man wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. The, the line, word line here, it's just a measuring cord. If you were to, like sometimes we would measure our kids and you mark them on the door and whatever. And that's the same type of a thing here. The same way I measured out judgment upon Samaria, I'm going to measure that out to Jerusalem. The plummet, a plummet was an instrument used for vertical accuracy to keep a wall straight. God says, I'm going to judge you by the same standard I applied to the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria and to the line of, of Ahab. Well, what did God do to Samaria? He leveled it to the ground. That's the measurement He used. What did He do to Ahab? He wiped out Ahab's line. He says, I didn't hold back dealing with their sin. I'm not going to hold back dealing with your sin. Now, so let me throw this thing out. How many times have you maybe driven out 
and you see some guy and he's got a sign on or he's holding a sign and it says judgment is coming the world is ending you know whatever stuff like that and you kind of think to yourself what kind of person's out there like does that all day you know and you have a job, you got nothing better to do, like you have no hope. Even as a believer, sometimes I'll see something like that and I'll think, okay, they're probably just trying to get people's attention, call them to repentance. They're probably a perfectly normal-minded person. But most of us dismiss that. I would say most people tend to dismiss that and think that guy's crazy. So can you imagine what it would have been like to be living in Judah, and you hear this sermon? The end is here. It's over. I wonder what the people of Judah thought when God wiped out Ahan's line. I wonder what they thought when Samaria was leveled by the Assyrians. I mean, did they kind of sit back as they were having their morning coffee and go, they're kind of getting what they deserve. I mean, you've been hearing what's been going on there for the last 100 years, 200 years. I could have told you that was coming. Or maybe I thought, well, you know, what do you expect when you're, to happen when you're going to be foolish like that? The message from the prophets to these guys now must have sounded so absurd. We're, the, we're from Judah. We don't, this stuff doesn't happen to us. We've never been as bad as Israel. I mean, David, he, all of his kids, all of his descendants, they're on our throne. We're not these rebels who broke away and never had a good king. Yeah, things might be bad, but it can't be that bad. Truth is, anyone can shake their head and act like an expert coroner when something fails. Oh, I know why that happened. But a wise person sees disaster and realizes it could happen to them too if they aren't careful. Few people that I know who've either had or their lives have become a moral or a spiritual disaster. A few of them plan to go out and do that. I'm going to wreck everything around me. That's my goal in the next 10 years. Which means any of us can end up there if we don't nip things in the bud immediately. If we tolerate compromises, each small move away from God adds up, right? But because it's a small move, you don't realize how far away you are over time. And that's where Judah's at right now. The Ahab comparison is interesting because God wiped out Ahab's line. It, it's, there are no descendants of Ahab in the world today. I don't think that's what the prophets are preaching, though, because we know David's line continued, and God promised David's line would continue even if they got involved in sin. So what I think they're referring to is God removing Ahab's line from the throne. And that did happen to David's line when Nebuchadnezzar leveled Jerusalem. That did happen. The Lord says, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem like a dish. A man wipes a dish. The word here, dish, refers to a, a shallow container used to eat food. Uh, if you were at the Man Up retreat, not this year, but the previous year, it's like the thing we got, the gift they gave us, that little plate. I use that plate at Man Up to, I take my meat out and test it to, to see if it's done. And when I wash that thing out, I don't leave anything in it. I don't go over there with chunks of food in it, whatever. I take that thing and I turn it upside down and I dump it out. And then I go wash it. And I wipe it and I make sure everything's clean so that I don't get sick the next time we use it. God says, I'm going to do that with Jerusalem. Nothing will be left. 
everything will be gone. Now, this is a radical message, not just because it was heavy, but because it was unheard of prior to this. I mean, the people would very likely hear it and go, God would never do that. I mean, we're His people. We're His inheritance. And yet the Lord in verse 14 tells the prophets to say this, and I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance, and I will deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. This word forsake is an interesting word, because I was reading this, I was struggling, and my Hebrew is not as near as good as my Greek, so I don't like wading too deep into those waters because I, I don't want to make a mistake. So I thought, well, let me wade in because I'm kind of confused. God said He would not forsake them. So I was confused. This is a unique word, though. It's an interesting word. It means to cause a relationship or an association to cease until a possible renewal. Isn't that interesting? God isn't saying, I'm done with you forever. He's saying the current way you and I are interacting is untenable. Things can't continue the way they are. And so, I'm going to take my hand off. I'm going to turn you over to the hand of your enemies, and you're going to become a a prey, the, the loot, a spoil, the prisoners that are taken in war. That's what you're going to become. I'm going to release you out of my hand, and you'll be on your own. But the word, this word, forsake, leaves something unsaid hanging out there which is this, if you change, the relationship can be repaired. So he's not going to completely forsake them. You see, the Lord is faithful to his promise, even in judgment. Unlike us, he always keeps his covenant. And that's what makes the new covenant better than the old one, because it's not based on our faithfulness, it's based on Jesus' faithfulness. Amen? (laughs) He says he would give them into the hand of their enemies, and they would become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. So there's mutual, uh, multiple foes that would be victorious over them. Assyria is going to be the immediate threat, uh, but eventually it will be Babylon um, that will level Jerusalem and take them captive. And many of the smaller nations around them will join in that kind of beat down uh, for those who escape Babylon. Now, if the prophets ended their sermon here, we'd go, okay, makes sense but they have one more thing to say. Because the nation's current behavior isn't the only reason the prophets bring this pronouncement of judgment. Verse 15. Because, so now we got a second reason, because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me, so how's this? here's the second reason, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt even unto this day. What? God says, I'm going to do this because from the moment they came out of Egypt, they have been provoking me to anger. The Bible teaches that you and I can affect the heart of God so as to cause Him heat, pain, or grief to various degrees of intensity. The Bible teaches that. I realize that messes with some people's theology, but the Bible teaches that, that we can affect the heart of God to various degrees of intensity. Our God is not a stoic, unaffected statue like the idols are. And sin angers Him. 
We read it in our scripture reading in Psalm 7. I wrote it correctly here. Psalm 7, verse 11, where it mentions that God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. Psalm 7, 11, God judges the righteous, and God is, the idea there in verse 11, that God is a just judge. He's not an unjust judge. So when we talk about God's anger, it's not that God, like maybe you had an angry parent or an angry sibling and you you had to kind of tiptoe around them because they would just fly off the handle at random moments if, if you push their button the wrong way. The writer of Psalm 7 is saying, God's not like that. He's a just judge. But there is a settled anger in him every day at the wicked. There's never a time when a wicked person sins that God isn't upset It says, if the wicked does not turn, verse 12 of Psalm 7, if he doesn't turn around, if he doesn't repent, then God's going to be sharpening his sword. He's going to be bending his bow and making it ready, making sure this thing ready to be used. He has also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordains his arrows against the persecutors. So the idea here is that there's a process whereby when God sees sin, he's angry, and then he gets to a place where he's like, I need to start moving in a direction of action. And then eventually, if we don't repent, he has to take action. But there's never a time he's not angry or upset by a person's sin. God is never unaffected by a wicked person's sin. Now, God doesn't act on that anger every time, but if a wicked person doesn't repent, he eventually takes action. These prophets, whoever they are, they're unnamed here in 2 Kings, but they lay out the reality. This is a powerful truth, so don't don't go to sleep now. This is important. (laughs) These prophets lay out the reality that God has been angry with the nation's sin from day one. I'll say that again. The prophets lay out the reality that God has been angry with Israel's sin from day one. He's never needed them to do something really bad to be justified in acting on his anger. At any moment throughout their history, if he could have said, you know what? I'm going to deal with this. He would have not had to give an explanation. The only thing preserving them from day one was his mercy. That's it. Always. His loving kindness to them, his has said his unconditional devotion to them. In other words, Israel before the split and then Judah after the split never has deserved anything better than judgment. Never at any point in their history. Their existence and their blessing has always been on the basis of God's loving mercy. There is a logical fallacy in presuming that God's judgment is only just if we meet a certain threshold of evil. How much sin do you need to do to be a bad sinner? That's like asking the question of like, how close does my my missing of the target need to be not really missing the target? Like, hey, how'd you do at archery today? I did great, really. What'd you score? I got a 35. Oh, cool. So you hit it here and here. No, I didn't hit any on the target. What do you mean? You can't score anything above a zero if you don't hit the target. I got close. There is no close. If you get tackled at the one-yard line when time runs out, you don't get a touchdown because you're only one yard away. 
say, well, I could have been 20 yards away. And I mean, they should give it to me. I was close. There's no such thing as a bad sinner because being any kind of sinner automatically takes you out of the category of good. And so when I try to relate to God on the basis of, well, I'm not that bad, what I'm saying is I'm basically good. But basically good is not God's standard, which means you'll never have a relationship with God on you being basically good. Just like Judah never existed because they were a good nation, you aren't going to escape judgment because you're a basically good person. Now, I'm not saying every sin is the same. The Bible doesn't teach that. But every sin still falls short of God's standard. And that angers the Lord, not just a horrible sin. When God fulfilled what He told these prophets to say He would do, years later, Jeremiah penned these words from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Most of you may be familiar with them because they're famous. They show up in songs quite a bit. It says in Jeremiah, or Lamentations 3, 32, but though he caused grief, oh, that's not the one I'm looking for, 22. Jeremiah 3, 22. It is the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, Jeremiah pens those words as he's watching his people being led away in chains by the Babylonians. He's sitting in Golgotha, one of the eye sockets of Golgotha, where Jesus would be crucified, and he's watching his people being led away into captivity, and he pens those words as he's just lamenting what happened to his nation. He says, God, truth is, he still didn't give us what we deserved because we're still alive. Judah existed for all those years on the basis of God's mercy. God pronouncing what, that judgment is now coming, that's what they've earned from the start. Not just because they recently followed Manasseh's awful leadership. So, that's the prophet's message. These sermons, though, from multiple sources did not sit well with Manasseh. The king, in verse 16, it tells us, moreover, moreover could be translated, and next. And next, so in response to this, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin and doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, Beside all the awful things he did in verses 3 through 9, it says that he executed tons of innocent people. So this can't just be these prophets. This must have been others who rejected his policies and continued to faithfully worship the Lord or maybe, maybe spoke out against the things that were going on. I don't know what, what, what they did or how he knew or why he did it to them, but they were innocent. In other words, they had committed no crime that was punishable by death, no capital crime, but he, he killed them because of their faithfulness to the Lord. Jewish tradition holds that Manasseh executed Isaiah the prophet by placing him in a log and then sawing the log from top to bottom. We 
read about that in the book of Hebrews when it mentions, it talks about you know, all these great acts of faith everybody did, you know, the awesome things they did. And it goes, yeah, and some of them were stoned and some of them were killed or some of them this, some of them that. And then it mentions some of them were sawn in two. Most people believe the writer of Hebrews was talking about Isaiah. So why would he go do that? Well, rejecting God's correction results in a hardened heart. (laughs) If you keep rejecting God's correction, you eventually get to a point where you're driven to silence it. I've always thought it weird. Like, okay, I could really go off on a tangent right now. I'm not, I'm going to try not to. But like today, it's very common to hear phrases that are along this line that words are, are violent. I've always been like, say whatever you want about me. Like, I think you're a fool, so I don't care. Now, I realize we're not all disposition, like our, our personality types are not like that, okay? Some of us are nice and some of us, like me, aren't. But I've always been, my thought has always been like, why do you care what we believe? You believe everybody's going to hell if they don't accept Jesus. It's like, okay, well, if you, do you think I'm right? No, I think that's an awful thing to believe. Okay, well, then why do you care? Do you think, do you assess me and believe that I've made an intelligent decision in believing what I believe? No, I think you're dumb. Okay, well then, why do you care what a dumb person thinks? It's always, it's just, it's been bizarre to me. Like, why do you care? The new phase is to say, well, that's hateful. It's violent. They will say, you're literally killing people. If you get to a point where you're driven to silence somebody, that says way more about you than it does about them. Way more about you. I have no problem if somebody's got weird ideas. I'll tell them I think your ideas are weird. I don't agree. I believe the Bible. I mean, if it's someone I really care about, I'm moved by the fact that they're not in the truth or maybe they're not, you know, if they were to die tonight, they'd be eternally separated from God. Yeah, I mean, that, that moves me in that way. But, like, I'm not awake at night thinking, I said this. Everybody's got their own decision to make. I had to wrestle through the things I've wrestled with through the years to make the decisions I've made. So I don't know where they're at, and they're wrestling with life, wrestling with God. I don't, I don't know where they're at. So I, I'm, not, I'm not bothered by that. You know, somebody comes here and goes, I, I don't agree with anything you said today. I'm like, oh, I didn't either. <laughs> sometimes I don't. Sometimes I think I could have done a lot better than that. You're welcome to that opinion. That's fine. I say all this because... If you find yourself just wanting to shut people up, you probably should start looking inward rather than outward. Check your heart. Ask yourself a few questions like this. When you go and you read your Bible or you listen to a teaching or you go to church, do you find God's Word is bouncing off of your heart? Even when it's something you might agree with? I won't tell you the whole story because I've told it a thousand times and we don't have time for that tonight. But there was a time I was at a pastor's conference where I had that feeling. I'm listening to a sermon and I'm going, amen, amen, that's great, that's great. And if somebody came up to you and said, Will, everything the pastor's been throwing at you in that teaching is just bouncing off your heart, I would have said, you saw it too? Because intellectually I was like, yeah, but I was like, something, what is going on here? I'm not moved at all by this. Do you find that's the case with you? Is it only getting to your head but not to your heart? Because that is a telltale sign that you have a hard heart about something. Probably not even what the guy's talking about at that time. 
But at some point, somewhere, God was trying to correct you, and you said, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. And so if you, if you find that to be the case, like if you answer yes to any of those scenarios I threw out there, my encouragement is this, get along with the Lord and ask Him to show you where you've resisted His correction. Because if you keep seeking Him about it, eventually the heart, God will break through the hard heart, and then you get to argue it with Him all over again because you've never dealt with it. Well, verse 17, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and this sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And this guy was so bad that the royal historians didn't omit what he did. Like even they put it in there, this guy was bad. You could read about it here. And so Manasseh slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the garden of his own house, his own palace, in the garden of Uzzah. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. Interesting. This is not where his forefathers were buried. They were buried in the king's tombs, a different area. So during his reign, at some point, Manasseh had a new family tomb constructed. No reason is given to us. But I do wonder, because the part that the writer doesn't tell us, that the writer of Chronicles tells us, is that Manasseh eventually experienced God's judgment. Assyria invaded, captured Jerusalem, and put Manasseh in chains, and then dragged him off to prison in Assyria. He was there for many years. And then in jail, he turned to the Lord. He repented, and God forgave him. And he put him in favor with the new king of Assyria, and the new king of Assyria let him go, let him go back to his throne. And when he came back and was the king of Judah again, Manasseh took down all the pagan worship sites and he died a believer. Maybe he didn't feel worthy to be buried with his forefathers. Maybe he built this before he repented and he goes, I don't need to be buried with them. I don't know. It doesn't tell us why. What I wonder even more though is, why doesn't the writer of 2 Kings tell us that part of his story? Why doesn't he include his repentance? If we didn't have Second Chronicles, we'd never know this guy repented. In fact, you read this and you just go, bad guy. Well, many think that the writer left it out because Manasseh's repentance and then his late reforms, it didn't turn the nation around, which it didn't. So much so that when his grandson, Josiah, becomes king, just three years later after his death, there are no Bibles in Judah. Nobody has a copy of God's Word. Can you fathom that? Oh, the idol worship sites were gone, but sadly, so were the people's hearts. I've known many people who turned to the Lord late in life, but that does not undo all the pain they caused before they turned to the Lord. And so while our writer often records instances of God's mercy when His people repent, he doesn't do so here because he's also trying to communicate to the exiles how the nation failed to honor their covenant with God. Remembering God's mercy, that, he's a, that He is a merciful God, that's important. But these exiles also need to remember why they are there. That it's not just about eliminating the really bad things. They do need to return to loving the Lord again. Well, Manasseh's son Ammon becomes Judah's next king in verse 19. 
we see his very short reign summarized. It says, Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Jotbah. Nobody can agree where that place is, who she is, or anything important about her, so I've got nothing. Verse 20 is important, though. And, and by the way, the fact he only reigned two years lets us know something's up. Well, verse 20 tells us, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. Even though his dad repented at the end of his life, Ammon did not emulate that version of his father. He became a wicked ruler like the earlier version of his father. And verse 21 tells us about his wicked leadership. It says he walked in all the way of his, fa- his father walked in, served the idols that his father served and worshipped them, and he forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. He rebuilt everything that his dad tore down before he died. I wonder what it was like for Ammon as a kid. I mean, he was carted to all sorts of different worship places. You're like, who are we going to worship today, Dad? I mean, he was all over the place. Today it's this God. Today it's this goddess. Today we're going here. And then your dad starts executing anybody who speaks out against your idolatry. Then your nation gets overrun by Assyria and your dad's carted off in chains. I don't know who ran the country while his dad was imprisoned, but then all of a sudden your dad is released when you're probably high school age, maybe college age. And he, in your view, gets religious, gets spiritual. Is it possible that Ammon thought to himself, uh, maybe this is how dad coped with his imprisonment. You got spiritual, dad? Where was that my whole rest of my life? I don't believe in any of that nonsense more than you did before. I don't know why Ammon rejected the changes he saw in his father. But for a short period of time, his family did worship the Lord, and it tells us he forsook him. The word forsook, it means to abandon a former association. So he had started to worship, maybe not from his heart, but he was attending things that God said to do. He, He wasn't attending the pagan services anymore. He wasn't worshiping idols anymore. He was attending temple worship and other things that had to do with the Lord. And then when dad died, though, He abandoned everything that they had started doing. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but Ammon was not well liked by his court officers. And so after two years of his rule, they formed a conspiracy to kill him. Verse 23, and the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and they slew the king in his own house, his own palace. These servants, the word there means court officials or officers, there was a coup attempt similar to what we saw over and over again when we read about the northern kingdom. I don't know if these were generals or whatever, but but these were powerful individuals in the government, and they formed a conspiracy, and then they sprang their coup, and they got to the king. They killed him. But notice the coup did not succeed even though they got to the king. It says, and the people of the land slew all of them that conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his stead. So Judah is not used to this kind of stuff. I mean, this was kind of the norm in Israel. But Judah was not. There was still a lot of loyalty to the line of David. David is still a very popular king, even though they were not a spiritual people. And so 
coups, the way they're designed is you don't usually try to pull them off unless you got the army behind you because you need to be able to shoot anybody who tries to stop you, right? So you usually want to get the army behind you, and then you, you design it to be lightning fast, that you can seize control of the government so quickly that the people can't do anything about it, right? So these guys either overestimated the support of the army or things moved too slow to keep the people in the dark. And so as a result, the conspirators could not consolidate power enough, and they were arrested and executed by just the regular people, the general population. And so the people preserved David's line, and they put Ammon's son, Josiah, on the throne despite his young age of being only eight. Verse 25, now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? He too was buried in the sepulcher in the garden of Uzzah, not with their ancestors, the other kings. And then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. And I mentioned earlier that when Josiah takes the throne, things are so bad that no one in the nation has a Bible, not even the priests. That's the legacy of Manasseh and Ammon. They turned Judah into a carbon copy of Israel, the northern kingdom, and now they're experiencing all the problems that Israel had. I would imagine being in Judah was probably a little bit like being a churchgoer in the U.S. right now. Scriptures are not highly honored. A lot of religion, a lot of gusto about what we believe is right, but not a lot of Scripture. And so, there's a deception that comes with that, a self-deception that, well, I love God, I'm doing what He wants me to do, even though I don't know what He wants me to do because I don't, I don't read and study my Bible. That's the legacy of Manasseh and Ammon. So while this is not an easy chapter to read, not a fun chapter to read, it does leave us with an important lesson, and it's this. If we don't learn from history, People say, we'll be doomed to repeat it. I guess that's sort of true, but something else is more accurate, and it's this. If we don't learn from history, we will somehow convince ourselves that we're better than those who came before us. That's the real problem. You see, we will come to a place where we think that we can compromise like this or take on God like that generation did, but we'll, we'll be okay. They, they messed up, but we're not like them. We'll be okay. We won't suffer the same consequences. It will never get that bad for us. And the world has been doing that for centuries. Individuals have been doing it since the fall. It's the fight that we all have when we're not walking with the Lord. Well, that won't happen to me. And someday, most of the world will unite behind the Antichrist, and that group will be so proud that they will literally aim their weapons at Jesus when He returns. History is not doomed to repeat itself. We doom ourselves by not learning from history. So, here's the lesson. Let's be those who recognize that we can become like those who failed before us if we are proud and unwise. Let's be those who humble ourselves regularly before the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand.
Lord, we just sang at the end of our worship time, let us be a generation that seeks your face. Lord, you are the God of Jacob, not just the God of Israel. Not just our God when we're getting everything right. You're the God when we're being, being foolish and trying to do things our own way. But Lord, we don't want to be a generation that's proud and unwise. We want to be a generation who humbles ourselves before you, that seeks your face. Lord, show me. Like David would pray, Lord, search me. Know my heart. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And then lead me on the, the, the everlasting path, the right path, the one that leads to you, that leads to eternity. Lord, let us learn the lesson from the legacy of Manasseh and Ammon, that we would be people who do that that we humble ourselves. We know and we acknowledge that this could happen to me if I, if I don't stay humble. So Lord, we love you and we humble ourselves before you. Lord, if there is anyone here tonight who's got a hard heart right now, maybe, maybe they didn't even know it until till it was brought up. Maybe, maybe your spirit just said, hey, can we, we need to talk. So Lord, if there's anybody that's going through that right now, would you speak to them Lord, would you break through the hardness of their heart and would you speak so that, Lord, they can know and then they can wrestle with you again about it instead of just turning a blind eye and going forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.